0: 1 Peter 1 13 to 21. Today we're thinking about 1 Peter 1 verses 13 to 17, which is part of the larger section, verses 13 to 21. The Apostle Peter has already listed for us the great privileges that God in his grace has lavished upon his people in the gospel. In verse 1, Peter says for the first time what he says again in verse 17 that if we are Christians, we are exiles. In verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is our identity. We are social, cultural outsiders for Jesus' sake. How can we be faithful to Jesus as exiles in a hostile world. And Peter is applying to us the practical implications of of the privileges that he has so wonderfully outlined in verses 3 through 12. If you notice in verse 13, it begins with the word, therefore. So in light of everything I have said, therefore, here is how you should live. It was Edmund Clowney who said the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore, which is helpful. The commands to obey, to live a holy life, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. In light of the promises and the gifts of God in his grace, in light of what Jesus has done, therefore, here is how You should then live. And as we consider Peter's therefore and these implications of the grace of God in verses 13 through 17, I want to see Peter is inviting us to look in three directions. First of all, in verse 13, Peter invites us to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. The key word there is hope. Peter wants Christians to have hope. Though now they are experiencing trials, there is hope. Christ is coming, look forward. Secondly, Peter wants us to look backwards in verse 14. He reminds them of their old lives. Before they were Christians, the passions of their former ignorance. Peter is reminding us to name our old life, our old ways. Peter wants us to grow in an appetite for holiness rather than return into the passions of our former ignorance. The key word here is holiness. Thirdly, Peter invites us to look upwards, to look up to God who is the Holy One and not only our Father who loves us but our just judge before whom we are to live during the days of our exile, in reverent fear. The key word this time, verses 17 through 17, is fear. So look forward in hope. Look back at your old ways as a motivation for holiness and look up to God who is the Holy One and learn to tremble before him in fear. Well, we're in 1 Peter And we'll read together, starting at verse 13. The passage is entitled, Call to be Holy. Give me a minute. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare in your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number one, look forward in hope. If we're going to navigate life as exiles, be faithful to Jesus. Even if that means bearing the cost, it is essential that we learn to look in the right direction. Peter invites us in verse 13 to look forward. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main verb in that sentence is set your hope. It is one word in Greek, set your hope. The big idea in verse 13 is to look forward to Christ's return at the end of the age. Peter wants us to fix our hope firmly on that coming day. The moment when Christ appears in glory and every one of his people are swept up forever with their Lord, to be forever with their Lord, will bring climatic grace to Christians. Not merit, not payment, even after years of faithful Christian service. Even then, your entry to your eternal reward will be a gift of extravagant grace. In the new creation, worshipping around the throne of God and the land, you will never turn to your neighbor and say, You know what? I am finally getting what I deserve. Look at what I did. Instead, you will see that your very best works, the things that you have done in Jesus' service, of which you are most proud in life, are so shot through with self and sin. That were the law to determine the question of your eternal destiny, Based on your best works alone, you will see you would have no hope at all. Instead, you're going to look in amazement at the grace you receive. Undeserved grace. You will know nothing you have done or could ever do deserves the joy you are receiving. And yet, you will hear the Saviour say, well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of the Lord you hear the father speak of reward and you say reward surely it is all grace after all it was God's grace that enabled what obedience we were able to muster in life and now it is grace that rewards such feeble obedience grace upon grace When fiery trials of many kinds come, what should you do? When you say with the psalmist, darkness is my only friend, what do you do then? You set your hope fully on the glory to be revealed and on the grace that is still yet to be brought to you. This is not it. This is not it. This is not your best life. This is not your best life now. If you're a Christian, you will never live your best life now, but you will live your best life on that day. Jesus is coming. Climatic grace will be brought to you in that day. Fix your hope there and press on. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Peter tells us in verse 13, in the first two clauses of the verse, how we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. He says you're to do it by preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. If you're using an older translation, it actually captures, I think, the Greek a little better. It is quite picturesque language. The King James says, gird up the loins of your mind. That is the picture. It is a great picture of someone in the ancient Near East in long robes. They have to tuck their long robes into their belt so that they are free and ready to run. There is no way to weather the storms. There is no way to fix your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus comes with a sleeping mind. Our culture of entertainment has largely collectively kicked our brains into neutral. It's like somebody has bumped the gear stick and our engines are idling. And Peter says, if you want to be faithful as elect exiles in a dark day, you must gird up the loins of your mind. You need to get ready for action and be sober minded. He does not mean be dour and joyless, but he does mean that you need to feel the weight of your calling. You need to feel the urgency of the gospel. You need to be aware of the dangers of sin. I want you to look forward to the great day of Christ's glorious appearing when grace will be brought to you. And in order to keep that day in view, you need to engage your minds and be sober minded. Look forward. Number two, look backwards at the old life. Then he says, starting in verse 14, I also want you to look backward as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter is inviting us to look back at the old life and to think about it rightly. Do not glamorise the old life. Do not toy with the ways and the words and the works of an ungodly life. It was not cool, and it was not fun. Peter says it was ignorant. It was stupid. You did not know the danger you were in before you came to know Jesus Christ. The damage you were doing, the dishonour you were paying to your God. And so, when the old passions rear their ugly heads, as they will from time to time, learn to name them correctly. They are not old familiar friends offering you relief. They are the enemies of your soul and they will destroy you if you let them. Do not be squeezed into the mould of your former ignorance. Do not let the old passions hold sway. Number three. Look up to God. Look forward. Look back. Look up. How will you generate a longing for holiness? Peter says, look up. Verses 15 through 17. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead of former passions, here is the path of holiness. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Look to God, look to God in his holiness. You are to be obedient children. You call on him as father and you call on him as father and your father is holy. And he commands his children to be holy he is looking for the family likeness study the holiness of God look up learn to love the holiness of God worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness join the seraphim around the throne singing holy 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 Lord God almighty the whole earth is full of your glory Make the holiness of God your great study and the cause of your praise. No one who learns to delight in the holiness of God can ever be content with ungodliness in themselves. They say you become like those you live with. Maybe you know an older couple couple who've been married for decades and their mannerisms, their way of carrying themselves, they finish each other's sentences and their behaviour their whole lives and they begin to resemble one another. You can tell they fit together, they go together and Peter is saying the God who has called you and adopted you and made you his children in whose household you have come to dwell by his grace, this God is holy, look at him, live close to him and you will become like him and begin to bear the family likeness. And to help with yet another layer of motivation and incentive, in verse 17, Peter says, God, who is our father, who has adopted us, the Holy One, is also our judge. You see that in verse 17? Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And that is a solemn thought. I dare say it is a subject we do not often entertain, but beloved in Christ, we do need to face it. You and I will stand before God at the last judgment seat. You will not escape a judgment according to works. Back in verse 13, Peter says, when that day dawns, it will be grace. And now he is saying, when we stand before God in the judgment, it is going to be according to deeds. How do we Hold those things together. Either it's a judgment according to works or it is all grace. But it can't be both, can it? Which is a good question. And Peter does give us some help even in the context. If you look at verse 18, it is very clear that Peter understands that our sin is paid for in full. You see that in verse 18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus, your sin is paid for. It is finished, paid in full, the debt cancelled, the guilt removed, the sin atoned for. Praise the Lord. And so there is no double, double jeopardy in the heavenly tribunal. When you stand before God on the last day, there is no question of your sin being counted against you. Your sin had already been judged in Jesus Christ crucified in your place. So what does it mean then for us to be judged according to deeds? We will not be judged according to our sin. We will be judged according to deeds, according to our works. And that is what I think Peter is saying when the last judgment comes and the books are opened and the vast assembly that no one can number is gathered around a judgment seat of God, waiting for the divine verdict, not the sins of Christians, not your sins, believer in Jesus, but your works will be counted. Not as the reason or the grounds upon which God will bestow heaven and blessedness and salvation, but as the great evidence that grace has accomplished its work. The evidence that God's promises are true, that his righteousness is vindicated, the evidence that his actions for us and in us for our salvation are trustworthy, his righteousness shown, every mouth stopped, and all the glory goes to him alone. Our sins will not be judged They have already been judged at the cross. But our grace produced, Holy Spirit wrought, good works will be judged. And Peter is saying that there is an awesome gravity to that, that ought to weigh on us if we are believers. And Robert Layton, the Anglican Bishop of Glasgow in the 17th century, put it like this. He said that this verse is teaching us to say, I will not sin, Because my father is my judge, but for my frailty, so when I stumble and fall, when I do sin, I will hope for mercy, because my judge is also my father. The verse is saying, because he is the holy judge, I tremble at the thought of transgressing his law. I love him and I'm in awe of his majesty and greatness and my heart shrinks back appropriately from betraying his love toward me. I will not sin because my father is a just judge, but for my frailties when I do sin, I do not fall into despair, but I have hope in his mercy because my just judge is also still my father in Jesus Christ. That is Peter's point, is it not in verse 17? Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile Peter is not talking about spiritual uncertainty and abject terror. Peter is not talking about the servile fear that is appropriate if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian today, what we're talking about right now ought to strike real terror into your heart because God is just and holy and you will stand before him at the last day. And unless you find in Jesus Christ alone a rescuer and a deliverer for your sin and guilt, you will stand exposed to his righteous wrath. And that is something before which we all ought to tremble. But the fear in the heart of a child of God is not servile fear. It is not terror of judgment. There is no condemnation for you. But it is, but it is the reverent awe, the trembling fear. That should fill our hearts at the very thought of transgressing his holy word, of betraying his love. We know him to be holy and we want the world to see in our lives some echo, some family likeness of that same holiness. And when we stand in that great assembly on the last day, we want our lives to adorn our profession and say God is good and just and right and look at what he has done in me in testimony to his goodness and grace. And so we live here in holy fear. Let me ask you, do you fear God? Do you know what the fear of God is in your own heart? We're uncomfortable with that language. We've been taught to Focus on love, focus on God's kindness appropriately. But the Bible speaks often about the fear of God. Do you fear God? Let me say we're in serious spiritual trouble if we do not fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you fear God? The fear of the Lord says I will fight tooth and nail to kill my sin because My father is my judge. And when I do sin, I will hope in his mercy because my judge is still my father in Jesus Christ. So Peter says, look forward. There is grace coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a day it will be when sin at last will be wiped from us, eradicated from us. And we will shine with the reflected brilliance of our glorious Redeemer. And look backwards. Remember the old life. Please do not glamorise it. Name the old passions appropriately. They're not your friends. Flee from them and look up. See the one seated on the throne, high and lifted up. The holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Live close to him so that you may become like him. And remember that your father is your judge, that you may live throughout the time of your exile in holy fear. May God bless the word for his glory and for our good. Amen.